everyone, and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. Today is Friday, October the 13th, 2017. I'm your host, Tiffany, and joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet. We only have a couple people. (laughs) We have Doug, and we have Erica, and we have Gabby in the chat. Elliot is away, and so is Jonathan. So we will see them when we see them. (laughs) Okay. So today, in honor of Friday the 13th, we thought we would do a show about superstitions. So triskaidekaphobia, or triskaidekaphobia, is the irrational fear of the number 13. And frigatriskaidekaphobia is fear of the day. Friday the 13th, specifically. So, we're going to be talking about superstitions, strange beliefs, ghosts, fairies, other types of magical thinking from all over the world. We don't quite know how all of these superstitions came into being or what purpose they serve, but we thought it would be a good idea, since it is Friday the 13th, to talk about this stuff. Just to see Mm -hmm. if we can figure it out, because it had to have come from something Mm -hmm. originally, or human beings just primed to believe weird things and make odd connections. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think? Well, I'm, I guess uh, it's probably a mix of both, actually. I think, I think that maybe some of them probably started because, you know, there was some logic to it. And then, you know, it all kind of gets convoluted over the ages and they get passed on, not quite in the original form. And you, you kind of end up with, with these weird ones. You know, so I can't think of anything specifically, but, you know, there are some superstitions where it's kind of like, well, maybe that actually did have a, a good a good reason for it at one point. Or, you know, the original one did, and then it just kind of, kind of got twisted or something. But I do also think that, people kind of have a tendency to towards sort of magical thinking. And I think mm-hmm. that we all do to a certain extent. And is I it think just that because some... we're stupid? <laughs> <laughs> we just don't know how the world really works. So we try to come up with these connections. Or trying well, to make I... sense of the unknown. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it for sure. Um, I think that, you know, especially in situations where you don't necessarily have a lot of time to reason things out, we kind of fall back on more automatic type behavior, which relies on, you know, very simple cause and effect type thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it makes me think of, um, you know, uh, the scientist Skinner, um, yeah. B.F. Skinner, and he like, you know, did a lot of animal torture type experiments. But one of the things that he did was he had pigeons in a cage and there was like food that came out at totally random time intervals. And what he noticed was that the pigeons would start kind of engaging in this really weird behavior to try and get the food to come out. And, you know, I think he, he saw kind of what happened is that, like, you know, the bird maybe just kind of randomly spun around and then the food came out. So mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it starts spinning around over and over and over again to try and get more food to come out. It's kind of like a very simple cause and effect. Oh, I spun around and then the food came out. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, you know, there's pigeons obviously don't have um, the ability 
for any kind of higher reason and thinking to themselves, well, that's not really logical if that's what's actually causing this. So they just kind of like engage in this sort of like instinctive level behavior. So I think that that some of these probably do come from that. You know, it's kind of like, well, something bad happened to me on Friday the 13th. Therefore, Friday the 13th is unlucky. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it happened two years in a row or two consecutive Friday the 13th in a row. And they're kind of like, well, that's that's bad. Friday the 13th is definitely bad. And it kind of just goes on from there. So I guess that humans aren't that different than pigeons. Because <laughs> if you picture like the first people on earth, wherever it was that we came from or however it was that we got here, uh, maybe they did do something like they spun around and something good happened. So they made that link and then they continued to spin around and expected something good to happen. But then you mm. also have like belief reinforcement. Yeah. Or like, just things that you learn from looking at other people. Like if your parents have a particular superstition or something that they do, and then you kind of take that on for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I one think of the a lot interesting of it is aspects Sorry, too on. is um, how certain superstitions kind of cross cultures, right? Mm-hmm. So like there's one um, where people save their fingernails and hair because they're afraid that somebody's going to do some black magic on them. And that that's also a very common superstition in Polynesia that mm-hmm. you would have to keep your hair and fingernails in a special container and then bury it because if a black magician or a kahuna got a hold of it, they could do you evil. So I wonder where that is, comes from, that it would be multiple places across the world before the internet yeah before Mm. the internet yeah i've heard of people saying things like that and they weren't polynesian yeah i've heard about it in other cultures as well and Mm -hmm. i think in voodoo too isn't it isn't it yeah Yeah. well even voodoo dolls right where they make a likeness and grab a strand of your hair and add it to it. So I think that in some cases it could just be a coincidence that you did something and something good or bad happened, so you make that connection. But I think that mm-hmm. in other cases that there really was a cause and effect and the meaning of it got watered down where it just becomes this kind of silly ritual that people do. But maybe mm-hmm. originally it did have some significant meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, give an example. Yeah. No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, one that perplexes me is the knock on wood one. You know, when it's like you say something and you're like, I don't want that to come true, so I'm going to knock on wood. And that kind of negates it somehow or something. Or it's even like, if you say something coming? positive, like you expect something positive to happen or something good is happening to you, you say, oh, blah, 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 knock on wood. So I yeah. guess it's kind of a way that you. Don't change your good luck. Mm. But yeah. um, in the medieval period, there were churches that claimed to have pieces of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. And mm. the church officials would say that knocking on that wood would bring good luck. So maybe that is where it came from. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. its origination. That makes a lot of sense. Our Lord and Savior was killed on this cross so if you knock on it you're going to get good luck yeah it seems like it would be bad luck i mean what a horrible way to die (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know 
but where's the fine line between it's a it's a good luck practice and then it's a compulsive obsessive behavior like i think of the one like when you're a kid you know step on a crack break your mother's back and then all of a sudden you're obsessively trying not to step on any cracks in the concrete <laughs> well i used to do that as a child but Eventually, I mean, I couldn't avoid all cracks, and I saw that my mother's back never got broken. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that one probably just came up because it was a clever rhyme. Yeah. Or not so clever rhyme, really. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is a good question, though. Like, where does the, the line between those kinds of things um, exist? It's like, you know, if somebody does have OCD, like, they have a compulsion to follow certain rituals. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're not, to my understanding, they're not necessarily like, you know, common, uh, superstitions or anything. They might be just a series of behaviors that they kind of feel, um, like unable not to do almost like it's such a strong compulsion. Mm -hmm. So maybe, I mean, it might kind of originate in kind of the same brain area, but there's just a compulsion there that kind of makes like turns it into kind of a disorder because I mean, generally you don't consider superstitious people to be like, you know, have a kind of some, some kind of like psychological maladjustment. I mean, maybe some people do think that. But. It depends on the depth of their superstitious beliefs. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, generally, like a, a sports fan or something who always wears uh, a jersey on the day that the the their team is playing or something like that because it's good luck, you know, quote unquote mm -hmm. good luck. I mean, I wonder if you like actually queried them about it, if they, you know, actually 100% believe that there is some kind of luck conferred by them wearing the jersey or if they just are kind of like well you know it's just kind of a ritual like it's just kind of a, a fun showing thing team spirit like yeah yeah exactly or you know athletes i mean are kind of notorious for being very superstitious and like oh you know during the playoffs i don't change my socks or something like that <laughs> don't want to wash the luck off well we do have a clip of the 25 most popular superstitions from all around the world. Hmm. So we can go ahead and play that. Yeah. Number 25, cannibalistic chewing gum in Turkey. In some parts of Turkey, you may want to think twice before whipping out the chewing gum. There's a belief that if you're chewing gum at night, it's actually rotting dead flesh. Number 24, groaning cheese for a newborn. You've probably heard of Swiss cheese, cheddar cheese, or pepper jack cheese, but have you heard of groaning cheese? In medieval England, expectant mothers made what they called a groaning cheese, which was a large wheel of cheese that matured for nine months as the unborn baby grew. When the groaning time, or time of birth, came, the whole family would celebrate by eating this cheese until nothing but the outer rind was left. The newborn would then be passed through the rind on christening day to be blessed with a long and prosperous life. What a cheesy superstition. Number 23. The good luck horseshoe. Some people believe in order to bring good luck and to keep nightmares away, you must hang a horseshoe in the bedroom or on a doorknob with its end pointing upwards. This belief stems from the fact that a horseshoe has seven holes, which is considered to be a lucky number, and is made of iron, so it can supposedly ward off evil spirits that may haunt you in your dreams. Number 22. Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th has been a source of superstition ever since the 19th century. Though its origin is shrouded in speculations and theories, its impact is quite evident. Many people will purposefully avoid doing anything significant, like business meetings, socials, banquets, or anything else, due to the belief that the day is cursed and it's a source of ill fortune. Number 21. Curse of the Opal Stone. If your absolute favorite stone is the opal, you're out of luck. 
literally, since this stone is said to bring bad luck to whoever wears it. The superstition stems from the best-selling novel Anne of Gierstein by Sir Walter Scott in 1829, where Lady Hermione was falsely accused of being a demon as she dies shortly after a drop of holy water accidentally falls on her opal jewelry and changes its color. This book had such an effect on the image of the opal that shortly after its publication, the opal market crashed and opal prices dropped by 50%. Number 20, Ringing of the Bells. Have you ever wondered why bells are always associated with weddings and special occasions? As it turns out, bells are sounded during special occasions due to the widely held belief that bells frighten evil spirits away. This belief originated during Queen Elizabeth's reign for two reasons. To ask for prayers for the departed soul and to drive away the evil spirits who stood at the foot of the bed. Number 19. Bird poop equals riches. Don't worry, you read the title right. In Russia, there's a belief that if a bird defecates on you, your car, or your property, it's a good sign, and it may bring you luck and riches. The more birds involved, the richer you'll be. So next time a bird poops on you, just count it all joy. Number 18. Old, new, borrowed, blue. This popular wedding tradition is said to have originated during the Victorian era and involves giving the bride various gifts. One is something old and represents continuity. Another is new and represents hope in the future. The third is borrowed and symbolizes borrowed happiness, while the last is blue and is supposed to bring purity, love, and fidelity. Number 17. Black cats, bad luck. Most people have heard the saying that if a black cat crosses your path, it's bad luck. If you haven't, well, now you have. This superstition finds its origin in the Middle Ages due to the misconstrued belief that single women, usually elderly, who associated themselves with many cats were actually witches who could become cats themselves. Thus, a black cat crossing your path could actually be a witch. Number 16. The Unlucky Smoking Triad From the Crimean War through World War I, it was considered bad luck among soldiers to light three cigarettes with one match. It was theorized that by the time the third cigarette was lit, a sniper would have had the time to have the soldier in his sight ready to make the kill. However, some believe that the superstition may have been invented by match tycoon Iver Kruger to drum up more business. Number 15. Counting Crows No, I'm not referring to the 90s band. It's believed that the amount of crows in a murder has the ability to predict your fortune, as exemplified by the popular phrase, one's bad, two's luck, three's health, four's wealth, five's sickness, six is death. More than six, however, seems to be up to the person who's counting. Number 14. Jinxed birds. The Rhineck, or Jinxed Torquia, are a breed of birds that can twist their heads very liberally. A superstitious belief among the locals is that if this bird twists his head towards you, death is on the horizon. Number 13. Soul-capturing mirrors. Most people use mirrors every day, which means, according to the superstition, most people are soulless. There's a superstition that states that looking into a mirror steals your soul. This helps explain why the evil queen uses a mirror to harm Snow White, why Narcissus was ensnared by his own reflection, and why soulless vampires have no reflection. Think twice before you look into the bathroom mirror. You've been warned. Number 12. Fingers crossed for good luck. To cross one's fingers is a hand gesture commonly used for good luck, which makes sense since it was used during ancient Christian persecution by believers to identify other believers as a sign of peace. Today, however, it has evolved to excuse the telling of white lies, which may have its root in the belief that the power of the Christian cross may save a person from being sent to hell for telling a lie. Number 11. The Photographic Soul Cage When photography was first invented in the early 19th century, people all over the world held the unfounded belief that taking someone's picture was akin to taking his soul. Thus, if an enemy was able to obtain a photograph of you, he not only held your soul, but also held the spiritual power over you. Number 10. Unlucky number 13. Not to be confused with Friday the 13th, which is a superstition of the actual day, but similar in nature, the superstition simply states that number 13 is associated with bad luck. That's why many architects refused, and some still do, to design stairs that end with 13 steps, or buildings that end with a 13th floor. The fear of the number 13 is so real to many people that an actual phobia has been created to describe it, called Triskaidekaphobia.
Number nine, when you wish upon a star. The superstition involving wishing on the first star you see in the evening is somewhat uncertain. However, Europeans believe that the gods would occasionally peer down, and when they moved to the sky, a star would escape and fall down. The Greeks also believed that the stars were falling human souls, and it was lucky to make a wish on them. Number eight, opening an umbrella indoors. According to superstition, if you open an umbrella indoors, you are literally asking for bad luck to rain on you. One explanation comes from the days when umbrellas were used as protection from the sun. Opening one inside was an insult to the sun god, who would then curse you with bad luck. Another theory states that an umbrella protects you against the storms of life, so opening one inside your house insults the guardian spirits of your home, which also protects you from the storms of life, causing them to leave you unprotected. Number 7. New broom, new house, bad luck. There are many superstitions associated with brooms. Heck, that could be a list all in itself. But there is one very curious and particular superstition that we want to caution you on. As the lore goes, you cannot sweep dirt out of a new house or apartment with a new broom unless you sweep something in first. If you don't sweep something in first, then you'll be sweeping out your good luck. Don't sweep out your good luck. Number six, the lucky rabbit's foot. To have this token is an unfortunate thing for the rabbit, but a magnet of fortune for the wearer. According to superstition, which can be traced as far back as the 7th century BC, the rabbit's supernatural luck could be exploited by taking the left hind foot of a rabbit that was shot or captured in a creepy cemetery on a full moon. Number 5. Knock on wood. Knocking on wood, or simply saying knock on wood after making a hopeful statement, finds its roots in the idea that you're tempting fate by acknowledging your good fortune. It's believed that the expression comes from an ancient belief that good spirits lived in trees. So, by knocking on something wooden, a person was calling on the spirits for protection. Number four, breaking a mirror. We've already mentioned how mirrors are believed to be soul-sucking mystical items, which is bad enough. But what happens when you break these devices of misfortune? Well, seven years of bad luck, of course. Some superstitious sources state that the trapped souls adversely influence your luck, and here you thought you were doing them a favor. Nope, make sure those suckers stay inside that mirror. Number three, God bless you. For many, saying God bless you after someone sneezes is a gesture of politeness. However, the origin of such formality finds its roots in Pope Gregory the Great, who would say it to people who sneeze during a bubonic plague, and from the erroneous belief that the soul escapes the body during a sneeze and the heart momentarily stops. Therefore, saying God bless you is a way of welcoming the person back to life. Number two, four-leaf clover. Though the origin of wishing over a four-leaf clover is lost to antiquity, it has long been a symbol of good luck and fortune. It's also been used in some traditions for finding a husband or a wife. The way this works is by first finding a four-leaf clover, if you happen to find one, you must then eat it. After this, the luck powers will activate, and the first person you come in contact with after the activation will be your future mate. Number one, itchy palms. There seems to be a lot of variations on this superstition, but the idea of having an itchy palm generally refers to someone who's greedy or has an insatiable desire for money. Some people believe that if the right palm itches, you'll lose money, while an itchy left palm means that money is coming your way. If both palms itch, you may want to see a doctor for that. So there you have it, folks. <laughs> that's our and show. And that's not even all of them. <laughs> <laughs> it did give a, an interesting explanation for the knock on wood one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that yeah. better than the Jesus wood thing. Yeah. 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 Since it's we do also... know that trees actually have spirits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Science tells us that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not really... A bad superstition to have, I suppose. The one about the number of crows in a group kind of made me think about um, ancient Rome and how they had all those signs and portents that they would do and, you know, animal sacrifice and 
being reading able to the read entrails. the entrails, yeah, and all that kind of stuff. It's like that was like a very superstitious society, and you know, it makes me wonder where that kind of came from. Um, it, it's just it's it's very interesting. It's like you know, if they saw birds flying, depending on the direction they were flying, or how many were with them, or you know, the the sign. It's like signs are absolutely everywhere, and it was like kind of an art form to be able to read them. Well, the crow thing made me think of an article that we read for the show about some dude in India who freaked out because a crow landed on his head mm. a couple times. Yeah. And he called his mother and he freaked out and his mother told him to go to a temple and light a candle and say some prayers and things. And then his brother came home and found him on the floor dead. Yeah. And they think that he yeah. may have poisoned himself, but that's a pretty extreme reaction to a yeah. crow landing on your head. Like, I, it just makes me wonder, like, you know, obviously this person was extremely superstitious, but, you know, to kind of, like, not have the peace of mind to, like, you know what, let me wait and see mm-hmm. and see what happens. Instead, I'm just like, no, it's it's hopeless. Suicide is the only answer. It just seems kind of extreme. He must have had something going on before that. I would think so. And the one about the bird poop. A bird pooped on my head and nothing good came of it at all. I didn't get rich. I just had to go home and wash my hair in disgust. <laughs> there was another one I read about too where it's stepping in dog poop. Mm. And apparently, dog dirt, they called it. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. And it's like if it's the right foot. No, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to remember which is which, but one of the if if it's right foot might be good luck and left foot bad luck, or it might be vice versa. I'm not sure. But, that's um, never good luck. Well, yeah, that's what I think too. It's like you know, it, if, if you, that's that's already bad luck to have stepped in dog poop. <laughs> well, I don't consider myself a very superstitious person. But the one superstition that I do have, and I have no idea why, is that I will never open an umbrella in the house. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. And I have no idea yeah, why, except that I heard that that's a superstition, so I won't do it. I pretty much do all of them fairly regularly. Like, I would open an umbrella in the house to kind of dry it off after using it. And, like, I've never had really an issue with walking under ladders or... Never really been freaked out by Friday the 13th or anything like that. But, you know, in one of the articles that we read, it actually was like, you know, more people, like most people have some extent of this kind of magical thinking. And it's like they they gave a hypothetical situation. So if you um, were getting a jacket and it was, you had the choice of either a jacket from a friend or a jacket that used to belong to a serial killer, Despite the fact that both of these jackets had been thoroughly cleaned, you know, which one are you going to take? And I was like, well, no, of course I'm not going to take the one of the, the serial killer. Well, you know, why? <laughs> what if it was a nicer jacket? I've heard the same thing said about shoes, that you would hmm. not take the shoes of a dead man. Oh, uh, yeah. So you'd be walking in their shoes. Yeah. Hmm. And I mean, I think it's 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 weird because there are like certain certain things that I kind of probably would not do despite the fact that there isn't necessarily a logical reason for rejecting them, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's not that it's, uh, you know, you hear these kind of superstitions and things like that. And you think, well, those are pretty stupid and you don't really bother um, adhering to them. 
well, except for Tiff and the umbrella. But um, it kind of, it, it, it seems like there certainly are things that you don't necessarily have a logical reason for doing, but you will do them anyway or not do them. Mm-hmm. Well, we have learned that things, especially water, hold a memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, crystals can hold memories of things. Rocks, mm-hmm. perhaps. Trees. Trees. So yeah. I'm with you. I wouldn't take the serial killer's jacket either. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, I think a lot of these superstitions, you know, just because we don't necessarily understand what's going on doesn't mean there's nothing going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one one another article that we read was talking about how, you know, this whole thing about voodoo. Um, apparently, there was a study done um, and people were asked to cut up a photo of one of their kind of childhood heirlooms or something like that, something they, that meant a lot to them when they were a child. And it was just a photo of it. And they had to kind of cut it up, like cut it into pieces. And a lot of the, the participants were actually really hesitant to do that. Like they didn't want to do it. It's like there's some kind of emotional connection to that. Hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, it's maybe it's just symbolic. You know, it's like cutting your ties or, you know, breaking the thing itself, even though it's just an image. But I mean, who knows, right? Like, I mean, there is a long history of people kind of like when they want to break ties with something like, you know, burning something. I knew a guy actually who, uh, when he felt like he had gone through um, kind of a learning process or it had reached another stage of his life, he would always burn one of his old shirts. Mm-hmm. He would take his shirt and kind of burn it. It was kind of like a, a ritual, like a cleansing kind of thing, like to kind of disconnect you from, you know, your past in some way. And, you know, be jilted lovers burning photos of their, their um, ex-lovers or something like that. It's like there, there is, you know, something to that, uh, whether or not there's any reality to it at all. It just it, at least it has some sort of ritual significance. I have experienced that with when there are people in your life who you feel are toxic and you want to kind of break those energetic bonds or mm-hmm. those shards mm-hmm. or whatever to write their name on a piece of paper and bury it. I've done that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did it work? It did work. But did it work because my belief system kind of, you know, reinforced that, that that something about doing that physical process did it on a a mental plane? Yeah. Or did you Mm. even need the physical process? Yeah. Because you already mentally are blocking this person out. Yeah. So maybe the physical Mm. is just something to reinforce what happened to you mentally in mm-hmm. order to block this person out. And mm. I have done that with burning things as well, you know, things from mm. your past that you want to let go of. So when um, I moved, I have a friend uh, who is from Mexico, and she said, well, when you leave your old house, you burn all the things that you don't want. And then when you move into sure. your new house, you know, I'm talking paper-wise, mm. not, not yeah, your okay. furniture and everything. <laughs> but then from your old house, fire. just set it on fire. <laughs> but then when you move to your new house, you need to take ashes from the fire and bury it in the four corners of the house. So I didn't go that far. Mm. <laughs> but I did take salt and put it in the four corners of the outside of the house to bless the house. Yeah. I have done that. To bless it in what way, though? So bad spirits don't invade. Is that where you were thinking when you were doing it? Um, were you thinking specifically about bad spirits? No, not necessarily. Protection maybe mm. from not bad spirits. Uh, I don't know. It's, maybe mm. I wasn't thinking. It's 
the thing. <laughs> I was just doing it. <laughs> Someone told me to. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably why a lot of people engage in these kind of uh, superstitious behaviors. You know, there was, but I will say um, with salt, too, that um, my child used to have night terrors and it was suggested to me to put salt on the windows to keep the bad spirits away. Mm. And it did work. It, it maybe made, made her feel better. Also sleeping with a rose quartz crystal underneath her pillow. And to this day, she still sleeps with the rose quartz under her pillow. So maybe it hmm. it it gave her some sort of reassurance. She still has night terrors, though, unfortunately. Mm. So I don't mm. know. Yeah, and in a lot of these cases, you have to factor in the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. Like you're Mm -hmm. doing something like you putting salt on the window to make your daughter feel better. But you could have done an interpretive dance and maybe that would have made her feel better too. (laughs) (laughs) You don't really know. One thing that always perplexed me, like you have these (laughs) God bless you people who no matter where they are, like I can be in my office and I'll sneeze and then somebody way on the other side will shout out, oh, God bless you. And I'm like, oh, whatever. I just sneeze, lady. (laughs) It's not a big deal. But I always wondered why people said, God bless you. And he did give a little explanation in that clip about how they think that maybe your heart will stop or something when you sneeze. So they want to, you know, give you a little health blessing. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, so many of these, it's just kind of like, just kind of reinforces the idea that maybe people weren't so smart back in the day when these things were happening. Like, but it's kind of like we, a superstitious mindset. But are we um, any smarter now? I mean, people still well, do those things. Yeah, it's true. And it, it's kind of like, I think some of them are done, like the the whole bless you thing, I think has kind of just reached the point of being a convention. Like, I don't think, I, you know, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think anybody is actually thinking that the soul is trying to escape when someone's sneezing. I mean, we've had enough experience when sneezing alone, there's nobody mm-hmm. around to bless you. Um, and, you know, I think I can still say I've got a soul. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe it left. I don't know. But the mirror thing was always very interesting to me mm-hmm. because there was this game back when I was a kid or a urban legend going around like you should never look in a mirror and say bloody Mary bloody Mary bloody Mary because something bad will happen but there has been folklore surrounding mirrors throughout history Mm -hmm. like vampires can't see their reflection in the mirror or like uh, Cinderella's stepmother casts a spell on her by using her magic mirror 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 on the wall and uh mirrors maybe can be a portal into another dimension or a way for spirits to cross from one realm into another one i mean so much of this is kind of woo woo but so much of the world is kind of woo woo and there are paranormal activities that go on so how much of this is true and how much of it isn't yeah I mean, not that it lends necessarily lends credence to it, but uh, Carlos Castaneda wrote about mirrors being kind of portals into these other sort of realms, and that you had to be very careful with mirrors, and <clears throat> there were certain things you could do with mirrors to, um, 
I don't know if it was to travel the realms or to have denizens from the other side come come through. But yeah, I mean, there there is a lot of kind of history. I mean, I, I guess mirrors are kind of inherently spooky mm-hmm. in certain contexts. So maybe maybe that's kind of why, like, people just kind of have this uneasy feeling of a mirror. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid, when I got up at night, I I wouldn't look in mirrors. Yeah, I was freaked out because it and it wasn't necessarily anything like. Uh, well, it was kind of like I didn't want to see something in the mirror that would freak me out. <laughs> so it's kind of yeah, just like I will not look in this mirror. I've had freaked out feelings regarding mirrors before. And then there's that saying that you should never have a mirror face the door or have a mirror face your bed. Hmm. Oh, I'm in for some bad luck. Me too. (laughs) That comes, does that come from Feng Shui? It might be a Feng Shui thing. Yeah, they've got, they, I know they have a lot of, um, like rules regarding mirrors. And and other many other things as well. And I mean, I, I, a lot of people, particularly in the West, kind of look on that as being kind of uh, just superstition in and of itself. Like it's just it's not you know a system of uh, you know arranging your living space for better energy or whatever. It is just nothing but superstition. But um, at the same time, I think there might be some credence to it. I heard mm-hmm. a talk um, just on the radio one time. They were interviewing a guy who was like a feng shui practitioner. And he was kind of like, yeah, I know a lot of people are thinking that this is just nonsense and whatever. But um, he said, like, when you walk into a room that has can, kind of been properly set up in a feng shui manner, you will you won't necessarily notice it as in, like, if you didn't know anything and came into the room, you'd be like, oh, this must be, like, arranged in a really good way. Or, But you would just kind of, like, like the room and kind of, mm-hmm have a feeling that you wanted to stay there it's like there's there's like this good kind of energy flow in there and although it's nothing you would necessarily note on a conscious level you would just like it mm-hmm. so i don't know it's hard to say because i've never actually had uh, a situation where i could try you know being in a good feng shui room versus a bad feng shui room so it's hard to say but i do think there's something to picking up energy in creepy places you know what I'm saying? Like you go into uh, someone's home or something and you just get a bad vibe. Mm-hmm. Is that feng shui or is that is that superstition? Or are you are you picking up something energetically? Are you sensitive to it? And and you know, maybe you just discount it or whatnot, but I, I don't know. I, I definitely, and maybe I am superstitious. I have been in spaces where all I want to do was get out of there, that, mm-hmm. that there mm-hmm. was something really wrong. And that's yeah. why I carry my lucky crystal with me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can say that I've been in certain places. Maybe I just don't remember, but definitely around certain people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I cannot yeah, wait company. to get away from them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And and I think that like that this is why, you know, it, it's so often kind of presented as, you know, you're either a rational person or you're an irrational person. So it's like, you know, you either um, recognize that there has to be evidence for everything that you do, which actually is impossible. Nobody's actually like that. But, you know, the, that's kind of the idea, like in the in the in, during the Enlightenment, it's kind of like that. That was the ideal person, a completely 100 percent rational person. Um Versus people who rely on things like superstitions or feelings or um, intuition or something like that. And I think that we have to realize that there is much 
there is a lot more to knowing something than just logic. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that that one way that we get information is through whatever you want to call it, intuition, bodily awareness, something along those lines. And, you know, maybe that's where some of this thinking actually comes from. You know, a black cat crosses your path and you get this bad feeling. And it's like there's no logical reason. It was just a cat. You know, there's no logical reason why that should freak you out or something. But nonetheless, you kind of get an uneasy feeling from it. Mm. And I mean, you know, the problem with that kind of thinking is that it is so prone to error. Right. Like, you know, maybe you're having a bad feeling because what you ate for dinner isn't really digesting so well or something (laughs) along those lines. So it's like it's very it, it, it's it's very prone to error. But nonetheless, I think we have to recognize that there are more ways of knowing than just reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, another one is is um, owls being, you mm-hmm. know, an, a harbinger of death or bad things. And, I, and I've seen owls and and bad things haven't happened afterwards. So is it being open to the possibility it could be good and bad? Or mm-hmm. or then is it pattern recognition run amok where all of a sudden you see yeah. an owl and then you get in a car accident and you break your toe or whatever and all these things happen? Is mm-hmm. it seeing the owl or is it just everyday life? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the show we do like phone calls every once in a while. So if you mm-hmm. have some superstition that you follow, you can call in and let us know what it is. Maybe we can analyze you or you can put it in the chat. One of our chatters said that she or he only has a superstition for the evil eye. And they've had several mm-hmm. incidents where the naser bead. Naser that? bead. That's the picture in the show description. Hmm. Oh, that thing. Yes. Yeah. So what is the evil eye? Is it just giving somebody a a dirty look or the stink eye or looking at them sideways? I I don't know much about it, to be perfectly honest. It wasn't something that really existed in Canadian culture. So I had only ever heard of it through, you know, whatever countries, I guess it was actually said to be a thing mm-hmm. but i don't i don't actually know anything about it and until i i saw that that um nazar bead i i'd never known anything about it i did hear from a friend actually that um she came from a country that uh where the evil eye was a thing like people would would talk about it and believed in it basically and apparently there was a whole like kind of ritual set up around it where if somebody kind of gave you the evil eye there was like almost like a prayer kind of thing that was said over you to kind of like get rid of whatever the evil eye was doing. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a way of like counteracting it or something. So I think, I think there's a very complicated rituals around it, but I don't, I don't really know much about it. Yeah. Well, apparently there is a writer named Colin Ross. He wrote a book about mental illness. I forget the name of it, but he's been doing some research on the energies emitted from the eye. So maybe Mm -hmm. he can give us some insight into this whole evil eye thing. So we have a clip from him. We'll go ahead and play it. I've been interested in the whole area of energy fields literally for decades, but it's only in the last few years that I've really boiled it down to a level where, okay, I've figured out now how this can be turned into a for real science with actual numbers and 
and actually get published in mainstream scientific journals. And the first paper, uh, which hopefully will be the first of a long series, uh, has been accepted uh, and has been published <coughs> in a, one of the journals of the American Anthropological Association. It's called Anthropology of Consciousness. And it's gone through the normal peer review kind of scientific analysis process. And it's uh, presenting actual data from having the electrode just in front of my eye in the goggles that are insulated with tinfoil to keep out the background noise. And it's comparing that signal, which is you know, this far away from my eyes and it's not making physical contact with my eyelids or anything, to another electrode that's just on my forehead. So it's normal sort of brainwave electrode EEG type analysis. And it's showing the difference between uh, in the different frequency bands, which is starts off at a low, which is delta, and then there's theta and alpha and beta. Those are just different frequency levels. And the amplitude is how strong the signal is, how big it looks on the screen when you look at the wave. And the amplitude is different depending on whether your eyes are open or closed, both here and in the eye beam. Uh, and the differences aren't exactly the same. So the properties of the eye beam are a little different from the properties of the field coming out through your skull. And the properties here would be different from back here, so that's not unusual. And what it shows is, first of all, there is a signal. You can pick it up. You can measure it scientifically. It's hard numbers. And it's physiologically active. It's not just some sort of noise. It's actually varying with the state of your brain as the general signal coming through your skull does. And uh, so this is step number one in a, in a whole series of projects that I want to try and initiate. It's all about the sense of being stared at. The idea that I feel somebody staring at me, I turn around, I look right at them, they look right at me, we share a look of recognition, and everybody almost has had that experience. According to Western science, though, absolutely impossible. It's just random coincidence. No energy of any kind is allowed to come out of your eye. And Western science is absolutely like locked down on this because there's two theories of vision. One is the theory of intromission, where light goes into your eye, hits your retina, goes back into your brain, which obviously is true and obviously is going on. The other is the theory of extromission, which goes way back into the ancient world, and that is that some kind of energy comes out of your eye and interacts with the outside world. And that's what's disallowed. So since that's not allowed, there's no possibility of picking up somebody staring at you. And I basically said to myself, wait a minute, number one, I've had the experience, lots of people have had the experience, it sure seems real, and then thinking, well, okay, what kind of energy could that be? And finally I figured out, well, there's a type of energy that does come out through your skull, that's your brain waves. So if your brain waves come out through your skull, why on earth would they not come out through your eye? Of course they would. And since they don't have to come out through your skull, they're likely to be a little bit stronger just because your skull is going to absorb some of the signal. Maybe because of the shape of your skull, maybe because there's this big nerve cable right there, your optic nerve, and maybe because of conscious attention and focusing. For all those reasons, maybe the signal is a little stronger, which it turns out it is. But at very low frequencies, such as 0 to 60 hertz, which is hertz is one cycle per second, which is the level that brainwaves are measured at. Down at that ELF level, it, the signal doesn't drop off with distance at all. In fact, at a thousand kilometers, there's literally very little drop off in the signal. So it's absolutely scientifically possible that this energy could go out in the world quite a long distance 
interact with things out there and in a way that can be measured. And when you think of it for a second, well, wait a minute. If an astronaut on the moon can maintain radio communication with the Earth, why the heck can't your brainwaves go 30 feet out in the world and be felt by somebody else? So as soon as you switch it out of kind of the mystical, outside science, paranormal compartment into the hold on, this is just another electromagnetic signal. It's kind of like a cell phone signal. It becomes normal, scientific, testable, measurable. So then what I want to do from here is uh, talk about it kind of philosophically. So in the anthropology paper, I talk about here's a nice example of something that's in anthropology as a belief, and we study how it's transmitted in different cultures and the different forms it takes in different cultures and all the superstitions about it. But we assume there's no reality at the core of it. Actually, in fact, there is. And now we can do this series of experiments and find out, oh, is it possible to have a really sensitive electrode 30 feet away that can tell when I'm staring at it, which I guarantee it will be. Uh, a bunch of uh, electrical engineers at the University of Surrey in England already have published papers where they're taking an EKG from three feet away. Absolutely normal, one that you would see in a hospital. And once you can do it three feet away, you just have to get a little bit more sensitive software and electrode, and you can do it six feet away. If you can do it six feet away, you can do it 20 feet away. And if you can do it with the heart signal, you can do it with the brain signal. This would just be one example of many, many, many beliefs of primitive cultures, superstitious beliefs, that science has discarded. Hey, wait a minute, there might be something to this. Maybe if there's like a bad energy in a rock, okay, that doesn't mean that the rock's going to jump out and beat you up. But maybe the electromagnetic field that comes out of the rock can actually be sensed and picked up by a person. Maybe talking about the Earth Mother isn't just superstition. Maybe the electromagnetic field of the whole Earth is part of the environment that we've involved in for a billion years. Maybe actually being in touch with nature literally means being plugged into the electromagnetic field of the Earth. Maybe when we're out of touch with nature, we've actually gotten disconnected. We're so surrounded by electromagnetic pollution in cities that there's literally like a physics unplugging from the electromagnetic field of the Earth. And maybe that results in our feeling empty and spiritually disconnected. So instead of just being a debate in philosophy, this now becomes something you could actually study. Because you could measure the electromagnetic field of the whole body in a city environment, and then in Sedona, Arizona, or you know, some uh, sacred ground of the Indians, and see does the electromagnetic field of the body actually change and adjust to the field of the surrounding environment. So that's kind of the anthropology side of it. My patent application is if, uh, which is already in process and is up on the US Patent Office webpage, if you have an electrode over here, whether it's five feet or 20 feet, and it's sensing the general field that comes out through your skull, and then if I turn and look directly at the electrode, if the software can sense the difference in signal, because the I-beam signal is a little stronger, as long as there's enough of a gap and the software is sensitive enough, that's an on-off switch because the software will be able to tell when you are looking at it and when you aren't looking at it. Once that's developed, that switch could be connected to any electrical device on the planet. So 
here we have a primitive superstition that's impossible scientifically. People think they can tell somebody's staring at them. We just laugh it off as scientists. I've turned that into just like a clapper light, except instead of sound, it's the electromagnetic signal, which is absolutely no different from going and your garage door opens, or going and somebody answers the phone on the other side of the country. It's absolutely a scientific. So that's the, the number one paper in this series of steps. Hmm. Make a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, when he said about the uh, disconnection from the Earth's energies or the Earth's magnetic fields, maybe that can be, be an explanation for why historically people seem to be more superstitious than they are now. Maybe they could sense things that we can't sense now because of all of our mm. modern technology. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And it's like they, the whole um, kind of folklore around the evil eye was because they were actually able to sense eye beams. But I think depending upon your sensitivity, I mean, sometimes I could feel when people were staring at me and I wasn't even facing them. And it's not necessarily that they are sending evil rays my way. I mean, sometimes it could be a good thing, too. Like when mm -hmm. you look at somebody across the room and you feel like you make some connection with them. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think of that in like a romantic sense, but it could just be like, a friend that you're looking at and you kind of smile with your eyes because you're both thinking the same thing that you know. Mm -hmm. um, Nonverbal yeah. communication. Yeah. But that yeah. also makes me think like people who have more pronounced psychic abilities. Like there was one study that said people in general, even if they're not, uh, you know, psychic, they can not necessarily predict, but sense that something might happen. Or sometimes they can predict at least like up to 10 seconds before it does happen. So maybe mm. all of us do have that ability and some people it's just more pronounced than in other people. Or, well, it's interesting because there was, there was um, kind of a, a meta study done where they looked at a whole bunch of different studies that had been done on precognition from a physiological perspective. Mm. And what they found is that the body through, you know, I think they were doing like galvanic skin response and um, the body actually was able to predict, you know, a couple of seconds before or something like that, what, when something was going to happen. So it's kind of like maybe our bodies are capable of having some level of precognition, but it's just, it doesn't get into our kind of conscious mind. So it's not that you necessarily, um, oh my God, this is going to happen. It's more just like the body knows and can maybe get out of the way of like, you know, a falling picture frame or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's because, you know, sometimes people's reaction times on things can be pretty incredible a lot of the time. So it might actually help to explain that. But maybe it's just something that doesn't kind of reach our conscious mind, whether it's just not fast enough or we're just not, you know, aware of our kind of bodily sensations enough to actually kind of tap into it. Mm. Well, that kind of goes back to what we shared on the Amygdala Hijack show. 
about mm. you're responding like when I shared the man who jumped into the river to save the child before you know there was no the mom wasn't screaming or anything it was just something that he he did instinctively so I'm wondering if mm -hmm. that's that same kind of thing the mm -hmm. energy yeah. like just and just overriding any sort of conscious thought about it mm-hmm and just reacting. I mean, I, I feel like that happens a lot when you're doing something like driving. Mm -hmm. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, you swerve out of the way and it happens so fast. And you realize there was like a car in your lane or whatever it was, but that your body sensed the mm -hmm. eminent approach of the car before your conscious mind could have even do anything. You yeah. guys had mm -hmm. that experience? Yeah, and there's oh, yeah. been some studies where they say that there's no way that people's reaction times can be so fast considering how, you know, these signals have to travel from one neuron, cross the synapse, and go to another neuron. Like, how could you possibly respond that fast? But if you consider that the whole uh, collagen network in our bodies is another nervous system, mm -hmm. so maybe we have mm -hmm. something that's even faster than the nervous system that we traditionally think of, like the brain and the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. hmm. And that's kind of like the heart show we did, that it's, it's more than just a pump. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that can also explain why there are some people who are more in touch with energies like psychics or people who see ghosts or people who mm. see fairies because a lot of people still believe in ghosts. I think one paper that we read was like over half people in America believe in ghosts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's yeah. one in the UK as well that was saying that belief in ghosts is actually increasing, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, those things can be really influenced by like media and stuff. And I know those ghost hunter shows and stuff have been very popular in the last like 10 years or so. Um, and so, I mean, it could just be something like that. Like even back in my day with X-Files, um, oh, I think maybe like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, they say, oh, well, belief in UFOs is down. And I'm like, well, yeah, X-Files isn't on the air anymore. It's like, you know, cause th those, that, that kind of media attention can really like, you know, affect people in, in some way. But, but you have time, to think that. It's not that these shows are necessarily influencing people, which they do, but the fact that these beliefs are there influence the fact that the show got made in the first place. And well, the content yeah. in the show and that it mm -hmm. went on for, what, nine years or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I don't yeah, think true. that I've ever seen a ghost. I had a hallucination but it wasn't a ghost. It was, I was like half asleep and really worried. And I woke up and I thought I was talking to my mother and she wasn't there, but I didn't see her. But I don't think I've ever seen a ghost. I had a weird thing happen to me that was strange. Uh, my brother was about to graduate high school and my mother and I were ironing his graduation robe and we hung it on a mirror that was on my bedroom closet door. Facing your bed. No, it wasn't facing the bed. And we left the room and we came back in and the robe was on the bed. And I think we wow. went out again and we hung it back up and we went out again. And we came back and the robe was back on the bed. Whoa. But I did used to have a lot of nightmares about that closet where the mirror <laughs> was on the wall. 
<laughs> I had a lot of nightmares about that house in particular. But my mother lived in that same house when she was a kid, and she said that there were some strange things going on in that hmm. house. I've yeah. never seen a ghost, like actually seen it with my eyes. But uh, many years ago when my mom died, um, I was at her house, cleaning at her house, and she had this big wind chime, a really large wind chime, and there was no wind. There was It was still outside, and then all of a sudden it started clanking, and it wasn't like soft. It was really, really clanking loud, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it stopped, and there was no wind, and in in you know, of course, when you're grieving the loss of a loved one, but it was definitely like, oh, she was there. She was like, I'm here, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, take care and clean the house out or whatever. But it was, that was, I would say that's the closest I've ever got to a ghost yeah. where I actually I've, physically felt her presence and then the re and reaffirming of the chime. And I still have that wind chime and it's never done that since. Mm-hmm. So that was, that's my ghost story. Well, I don't, I've never seen a ghost either. I had a similar experience to what you said, Tiff, of like, I kind of just woke up out of sleep when I was very young. I don't remember how old I was. And I thought there was a person standing there and I thought it was my mom. And I asked her if I could have a cookie. (laughs) And then she kind of faded. And I was like, oh, weird. But, you know, I, thinking back on it, I always just been like, well, you know, I was half asleep. So it probably wasn't any, anything any high strangeness, let's say. Mm-hmm. But uh, I did have a friend who had a couple of experiences um, with ghosts. And the funny thing was that he was pretty adamant that they didn't exist. Yet he seemed to be the one who would have these experiences. And one time we were teenagers and um, we're kind of uh, walking through the graveyard at one point, which it's something teenagers tend to do. And um, he kind of came to a sudden stop. And kind of looked up and down and went, hmm, that's very odd. And then kind of kept, like, walked around the space that was in front of him and kept walking. And I was like, what was that? And he's like, I don't know. There was just some kind of weird, fuzzy, shimmery thing kind of, like, just there. And I didn't want to walk through it, so I walked around it. And the funny thing was is he let his girlfriend walk through it. So (laughs) (laughs) he didn't say anything to her. He just avoided it himself. Mm. True love. (laughs) <laughs> well yeah there's been loads of stories about people who lost someone close to them and the person comes back and they can sense them in some way or maybe they've mm. even seen them or had a conversation with them after they passed away so mm-hmm. i don't i don't put that outside the realm of possibility yeah i've never seen a fairy though and fairies no. is another thing that is a, a pretty prominent belief from around the world. Apparently, people in Iceland are really into fairies. So mm-hmm. much so, well, they say that the fairies live in rocks. And if they're building something, they'll kind of have some special people come in and decide whether there's fairies in the rock and whether they should move it or not. There's also the, the, the myth of the fairy ring. So if you're in a field and there's a circle of mushrooms that... Don't fall down and mainly for men, get your head stuck in the fairy ring because they'll, they'll whisk you away. Mm. And the whole idea of, yeah, fairy tales, you know. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know about fairies. I mean, again, I guess maybe it's just, uh, 
that I didn't have it in my culture growing up or anything, but mm. the whole fairy thing seems pretty silly to me, but um, there is also the perspective of, I think, um, is it Jack Valet mm-hmm. who was talking about the, the, the cool, the, the similarities between abduction phenomenons and old um, uh, fairy stories from mm. like a couple of centuries ago. So it might just be that there is kind of a, a certain high strangeness that exists and has existed for a very long time. And back in the day, people used to interpret it as fairies. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this day and age, people interpret it as aliens yeah, or something along those lines. Hmm. Well, maybe all these superstitions and strange beliefs and magical thoughts are are they kind of a way to help us have some kind of control over our environment or to give us some kind of assurance during times where things are chaotic and we don't really know what's going on? I mean, they must serve some kind of purpose and that's my theory for the reason why we have these thoughts. Well, there was a, Uh, a study done that that I can't remember the nature of the study, but it found that as people felt less control over their lives, it was more likely that they would have kind of this superstitious kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. So I think, I definitely think there's something to it. I mean, the same thing to a certain extent could be said about religion as well. Although I think a lot of religion, uh, the appeal of religion comes from, you know, community and uh, having people to kind of, uh, have your back, like belong to a, a, an in-group kind of thing, where superstition doesn't really have that, but it's still that same kind of um, belief that of, of some sort of order, you know, no matter how chaotic everything gets, like there is a, a certain level of order to things, mm-hmm. and there is a certain level of control that you have by, you know, uh, adhering to these kind of rituals in a way. No, have we gotten to the bottom of it? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess everybody is superstitious, even if they don't think they are. Mm-hmm. And that's it, the bottom. Yeah, <laughs> that's the bottom. <laughs> well, I think that's our show. I hope it was enlightening <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> No, we didn't solve any problems. We did have a few chatters share some of their, uh, Mm. I don't know if you would even call them superstitions. So one chatter did say that they, they pick up, they always pick up money from places that they want to revisit. And it's a way of keeping a tie to that place. Another said, uh, they save rocks from the places that they visit. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of mm-hmm. interesting too. And even with the money thing, I shared on the chat that I always pick up pennies and they don't have to be heads up. I always pick them up and I have a lot of pennies, mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, I just wonder if it's like reinforcing that you're paying attention or I don't know. I just, maybe mm-hmm. it's just a silly habit that I've had. And I just shared one with Tiffany because Pick, find a penny, pick it up all the day. You'll have good luck and then give it to your friend. Then your luck will never end. Wow. But you must be the luckiest person ever. <sighs> <laughs> Not really. And then maybe I'll go throw them all in a wishing well and hope for 
world peace. Well, I was going to ask if you ever do that. <laughs> do you ever do you ever throw a penny into a well or a fountain to and make a wish? I do, and I actually, mm. and I'm total disclosure here. I throw seven pennies into a wishing well because seven is my lucky number. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't ever ask for anything in particular. It's more, you know, protect my family, protect my loved ones, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's it's more just... That's asking a lot. (laughs) 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 Yeah, you should just wish for world peace. That's what I do when I blow up my birthday candles. (laughs) It never works, though. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> world peace. Might be too much to ask. Yeah. <laughs> but going back to the thing with the rocks, and even we kind of just mentioned crystals. Like, why do you think people do that? It gives them comfort. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that there's probably, particularly with crystals, but I imagine even with rocks, there is like maybe a certain energy inherent to them. Mm-hmm. Something that isn't necessarily immediately um, detectable, but uh, that there's something something there. I remember I had a friend who was very sensitive to energies and things like that. Um, and she could actually, you know, hold on to objects or rocks or crystals or something like that. And actually, like, she could, she said that there was, like, as many personalities in these things as there are in people. And um, I've read... Uh, other instances where people said the same thing about trees. Um, I, re- I was reading a book by a Qigong master at one point, and he said that, that trees all have very distinct personalities as well. And there are some Qigong exercises you can do with trees, but you need to kind of find the right one. You can't just randomly go up to a tree, you know, because some of them are going to be open and some of them are going to be much more closed and some of them don't like people, et cetera, et cetera. And I imagine the same thing is, is the case with like rocks or crystals or something like that. So yeah, maybe certain people, they're not necessarily consciously aware of it, but um, they get a good kind of comfortable feeling from a particular rock. And they're like, well, you know, I want to have that in my house. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. And also fond memories of people and things like as a, mm-hmm. you know, almost like a talisman, like people that wear also crystals or certain talisman as good luck, mm-hmm. protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think there's And I do believe in it. fairies, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I just oh, yeah? don't know why, any scientific reason why some of these things are true. Mm-hmm. Or why mm. so many people around the world do certain things. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of times there's the kind of like, a lot of people who will do something um, superstitious and be like, well, I don't really believe it, but you know, just in case, mm-hmm. I think there's, there's some, a, a lot of the, the times it's kind of like that. It's like, I could walk under this ladder and it would be kind of shorter than walking around it, but it's like, well, I don't want to tempt fate. So I'm just going to do it. I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. I sometimes do that. I feel that way about the umbrella. I, I, I really don't mm. practice not opening the umbrella in the house. No, me either. Well, maybe. Oh, you, you do practice that or you don't? No, I do not. You should. Yeah, neither okay. do I. <laughs> but I also don't hang out in graveyards at night either, so. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, should we go to the pet segment and then come back and wrap it up? Sounds good. 
Okay, so this pet segment is about uh, fermenting foods for pets. Mm. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to talk about nutrition again, particularly about species-appropriate raw food diet for pets. Although feeding your pet raw seems logical, after all, animals in nature catch their prey and eat it raw. Many veterinarians label raw food diets as dangerous because it exposes your pet to many dangerous bacteria. In fact, there is an ongoing defamation campaign against these kind of diets and many pet owners are confused. So in this segment, I would like to share with you an interview with Dr. Karen Becker that she conducted with Roxanne Stone, Vice President of Research and Development for company Answers Pet Food, where they talk about food fermentation and preservation for pets. Because raw food fermentation appears to be a perfect solution for those who are worried about feeding their pet raw. Well, listen up and have a great weekend. And next on my wonderful guests, talking about how they're doing innovative creations for managing potential pathogens in the pet food industry, is Miss Roxanne Stone. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Karen. Great to be here. So Roxanne works for a great pet food company called Answers. And Answers does a lot. So Roxanne is uh, head. She's VP of Research and Development. So she, I know you have your fingers in a lot of, of literally, in a lot that goes on at Answers. But your background, you have background in food safety technology. And I know that you are, you're passionate about, um, about all things fermentation. I am. So yeah. so let's talk a little bit, first of all, talk a little bit about your background. Then let's talk a little bit about answers, because uh, I know that you are, of course, intimately in, yeah. uh, involved uh, as a family. Yeah. And then we'll talk about this innovative technology that you're using. So let's start with your background as a scientist. Certainly. Well, as you mentioned, I am one of the family owners in Answers Pet Food. And I am responsible for um, quite a few things in the company, like sourcing, formulation, research and development, and of course, one of the most important aspects, quality control or quality assurance. And uh, I received both my bachelor's degree and master's degree in nutrition and food science from Utah State University in the late, mid late to late 90s. And um, I worked for 16 years as a food scientist in uh, many facets of the food industry, including quality control and food safety. Uh, until I joined uh, my family to start Answers in 2009. Yeah, so great. And you know what's wonderful? Each one, I know, I don't know, all of your family, but I know the family members involved with the Answers, and it really is a family project. Yeah. It's a labor of love in that regard. It's yeah. really, you're, you, you literally have a family dynamic uh, within that pet food, which I really, really love. But you bring to the table this, uh, this unique vantage point from food safety. So, of course, like all fresh foods in the industry, there is, I don't want to say you're, we're being singled out, but certainly right. fresh food manufacturers have to do incredible due diligence in making sure that their products are safe. And we have options within the food industry. Some of them are more acceptable than others. So talk to me about how you and your family ended up using the particular control measures that you selected. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, we selected fermentation as a form of uh, the methodology to control 
um, bad bacteria in in in, our, in raw food. And and you know, being a raw food manufacturer, um, you know, it, it, it's difficult. You want to use a method that's going to keep the food as as raw and and, and fresh and, and in a, in a state of you know living state uh, as much as possible. So fermentation was was the perfect fit, and and it's threefold really of why we chose it. Uh, uh, the first reason being it is absolutely the safest method for our pets, uh, by far, in my opinion. And it is the most nutritious uh, way to preserve food. And third, it really honestly is the only method that absolutely keeps the food safe from point of process all the way through the entire life cycle of the food right into your pet consuming it. So it was a no-brainer for us. Um, food preservation has been, the, the fermentation and food preservation has been around since the inception of, of, of humans on Earth, right? So this, this has the longest history of safety <coughs> and efficacy that, that we know of. And with our carnivores having those short digestive tracts, right, we know short transit time in the digestive system, we wanted to provide that that benefit of that pre-digestion, right? So you have this this micro ecosystem in in a food system, right? So we have these you know macro ecosystems we're we're very much aware of and how balanced they need to be in the micro ecosystem that's in this this raw living food. We have to keep that balanced as well, right? So we want to be able to take that all the way through the food system, and when we use harsh techniques like heat or, or pressure pasteurization that wipe out all the bacteria, beneficial or, or bad, um, we, we don't have that balance in that micro ecosystem. And, and, and unfortunately, that can set the food up for post-contamination where the food can actually become more dangerous uh, if mishandled or uh, temperature abused along the way. So, so food fermentation was the perfect fit for manufacturing a raw pet food in my mind because you 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 get that continuous protection all the way through that that point of that introduction of those fermented ingredients you're priming that system okay so you you, you have a food system that you put together you're inoculating it with that that beneficial bacteria and that stays in the system the entire way through so what's so wonderful about fermentation is you get that added safety benefit even if the food might be compromised along the way. So we know when it leaves the manufacturing facility, it's, all, it's out of the manufacturer's control often. It goes through distribution, it goes through retailers, till it gets to your pet's bowl, a lot of hands and, a, and, and conditions you know, have handled it. Mm -hmm. So you wanna set that food up to be able to handle those types of conditions. And with fermentation, if the food was compromised or actually got warmer, you, it's primed now for those beneficial bacteria to grow and those pathogens just can't compete mm -hmm. and they won't grow to those infectious levels. So we've done wonderful challenge studies on our foods with this and um, we're, we're amazed at the success and, and very confident in it. So we're, we're very grateful to, to have been able to utilize this method because 
there's so many benefits of fermentation. I could go on and on about it. <laughs> so, so, so that was a great explanation. But so here are my two burning questions. Uh, okay. Number one, how? So do you introduce? Uh, so how, like, how do you introduce the fermentation? Like, do you inter- do you do fermented stock or or? So like, right. how's it done? And then number two, how do you double check to make sure it's working? Absolutely, two very good questions. So the way it's done, we basically inoculate. The, our, our, the fermented ingredients become part of our formulation. So, so, so like many other manufacturers, we start with fresh USDA, often organic meats. And, and, and I do want to interject and, and say, say one thing here with fermentation. It's very important that you start with very high quality, good, clean meats. And I, I don't want to transgress too much, but with factory farmed meats and using confined animal feeding operations, um, if you start with a heavy load of contamination, uh, food fermentation isn't going to be as successful for you. You're going to have a difficult time with it. So it's, an, it's important to note that when you're using this type of method for your food preservation, you want to start with that balanced microflora. So that means using good quality meat, pasture-raised you know, chickens and, 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 and grass-fed beef, and starting with that balance is really important. So we start there, and that that's really the you know the first part. And it really starts in the soil. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of this goes through from you know healthy soil to healthy forage to healthy uh, livestock and on. But what we actually do at the point of manufacture is add fermented ingredients such as raw goat milk whey, okay, teeming with beneficial lactic acid bacteria. So that becomes an ingredient in the food. We also use fermented cod livers, um, also teeming with uh, tons of beneficial bacteria. So that goes into the food as an ingredient. Uh, in some of our formulas, we actually use fermented uh, decaffeinated green tea, which is kombucha, which a, a lot of people have heard of and has become a very popular fermented beverage that many humans drink and, and is uh, very beneficial for our pets as, as well. So we, so you're inoculating that food system and you're setting that whole system up for that benefit. You're favoring that beneficial bacteria because fermentation is, is generally a competition, right? Uh, we don't want to wipe out all the bacteria. Uh, that can have very negative consequences and, and we're discovering that now and, and, and everybody's jumping back on this probiotic bandwagon saying, you know, we got to get, we got to get good gut flora back in, back into our systems and for a healthy gut. And if we, if we uh, destroy all the bacteria with, with processing techniques like, like pasteurization, and we don't re-inoculate that, then, you know, obviously we're, that's detrimental to the homeostasis, that balance of that micro ecosystem that we want to see go all the way through to our pet's gut. So we use fermented ingredients. We inoculate uh, our formulations with those, and 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 that can happen at cold temperatures. That's fine. Uh, we use mesophilic type cultures. What mesophilic means is just uh, low fermenting. So they'll they'll ferment down at 50 degrees. So even at refrigeration temperatures, you're using cultures that can still be active down at those those lower temperatures. And so we we use those types of cultures, uh, a broad spectrum of cultures. Uh, the nice thing about fermentation is those lactic acid bacteria also produce an antimicrobial agent called bacteriosin. And uh, for for your listeners that may not be uh, familiar with that, that is like um, 
almost like an antibiotic that these little, little microorganisms um, produce that are detrimental to bad bacteria like Listeria and E. coli and, and Salmonella. And there's, there's much research on this. In fact, in the late, the late 80s, around 1988, um, the FDA actually approved an extracted bacteriosin. They named it Nissen. And that's been used in, in the food industry for many, many years, very effective. Uh, so these types of products that these lactics are making have been used in the food industry for a long time um, and fermentation as, as well. So it's, uh, you know, I don't think it gets enough credit for how effective it is. And like I said, the reason we chose it, because it, it, to me, it's so applicable to these carnivores who really need that, that pre-digestion of their food. You know, and so that that benefit comes from fermentation. So you've got all this proteolysis going on. It's breaking down proteins. It's releasing digestive enzymes. It's concentrating nutrients such as B vitamins, supplying vitamin K2. We know that these carnivores have that short transit system. They need those digestive enzymes. They need those concentrated nu nutrients to be able to assimilate their food quickly. So this was just the perfect fit in my mind, for a raw food diet to be able to uh, be a safe commercial raw food and then offer all those benefits to the carnivore as well. Yeah, and really what I just, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, but it's also just so inspiring as a company that you just have basically, you, you knew this from the human food industry, but you have transposed this information down into pet food and it's working fabulously for you. But of course, the big burning question is gonna be, well, how do you know? And I know, I know how you know, but tell our listeners right. how you check. Right, what well, we do, we, we do challenge studies on our food. So we can take a known number of, of pathogenic bacteria, for instance, let's say salmonella, and put it into the food at a, at a known concentration um, and then we can follow it uh, over time and see, it, it, has it grown? Has it you know, grown to infectious levels? Um, and we've done many of these challenge studies. You know, chicken is always one of the toughest because that one tends to harbor salmonella. And it's amazing how it just shuts it down. It just does not, that, that, that they just can't compete. And the great thing about it is, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the woods on regulatory because it, it gets kind of crazy. But, you know, zero tolerance or, or, or no pathogens or, or, or any bad bacteria in a raw food diet uh, is very unrealistic, yeah. okay? Yeah. And I'm not, and I want to clarify that, Karen, because I'm not sitting here advocating for high pathogenic loads in raw foods because they can get people sick, and, and we understand that. But to have zero, okay, so down literally none, um, it's very unrealistic, and, and they know that in, in the USDA side of things because we have tolerances for, uh, uh, you know, even very high-quality type meats that, you know, have, have a certain tolerance level. So it's just bad science, in, in my opinion, yeah. to, to, to impose those. And, and the way they test in regulatory for these, these pathogenic bacteria like salmonella and listeria the, the, the type of testing methods they use are so sensitive that they can pick up as little as one viable cell. And if you do the research and you really look into, you know, what makes people sick, you know, you know, what kind of load levels do you have to have? And I'm talking to you for humans. We know dogs' load levels can be extremely high. Yeah. I think you would agree with that. But let's just look at humans. 
I mean, they've done a, a lot of studies where they've shown that, you know, you have to be up over the millions and billions CFU per, per gram, which is a, a big portion, to be able to get to those infectious levels. So in fermentation, they may be present. You may, you may be able to detect a, a cell of salmonella or a cell of, uh, of a, a, an opportunistic pathogen. But what I love about it is that does not mean that, that that's a public health hazard, that that's going to make somebody sick. Yeah. And especially with fermentation, because what I like about it as well, you know, some of some of the fear I think that some of your listeners, your readers may have is that, oh, it, it, it's too risky to, to, to serve fresh food. And if my dog eats it and licks the, licks the baby or licks a child, you know, that, that could cross contaminate. And with fermentation, you got to remember when this dog is eating fermented foods, it's eating all of that microflora, all that beneficial bacteria. And that's what's going to be transferred to your family and, and, and to the rest of the household. So you're setting up a micro ecosystem for your dog that, you know, is going to transcend into, into the rest of the family. And that's, that to me is, is the perfect picture. You know, that's what you want to get to. Well, and that's a great example. And and what I do agree with you that the zero tolerance is um, incredibly, if, not only is it unrealistic, I think that it's potentially could be set up for being able to very easily pluck out companies because, I mean, kibble companies certainly, kibble is loaded with contaminants, including mycotoxins that can kill dogs and cats dead. So it's incredibly frustrating that we have this zero tolerance because um, dogs and cats handle normal flora very, very comfortably. It's a matter of making sure that we're doing our due diligence in removing human risk. So all of these amazingly innovative pet food companies like answers that are coming up with their own means of controlling potentially pathogenic bacteria without using extreme measures that totally obliterate all the healthy positive bacteria is just one great example of companies that are just embarking on their own. You are doing, you're kind of forging your own path and we are supportive and happy to be able to talk about this because in essence, what we're doing is we are not letting the, the, frustrations of the pet food industry weigh us down where you're just have a you figured out a beautiful workaround to control potential pathogens without in any way damaging or harming the raw materials or the meats included so i think it's brilliant thank you and i appreciate you discussing it with us today i'm happy to be here thank you so much those goats eating fermented foods (laughs) for sure Happy gut flora. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that with us, Zoya. Some good information there. Mm-hmm. I don't feed my cats fermented food, but raw food no, definitely. I think maybe I should start. Yeah, sounds sounds good. Well, and I don't mean like tasty good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anything else to add on superstitious beliefs? Have a great Friday the 13th. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, enjoy your Friday the 13th, everybody. We'll be back next week with another show on another topic that we have not decided yet. So thanks to all of our chatters, and we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye, everybody.